welcome to another episode of Policy Pod. I'm Giles, and in this episode, we're talking to Dr. Jonathan Havercroft about just and unjust rioting, looking at everything from the 1714 Riots Act all the way through to the 2022 Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. But to start with, a bit about you, Jonathan. So, before um, before we get to where we are now, perhaps we should look back on where we started from. What did you do for A-Levels? So, I'm not from the UK, so I actually didn't do A-Levels. I'm from Canada, and the system's pretty different there. So, their secondary education finishes at age 16, a bit like the UK. And then there's, in where I was, Quebec, there's a, a two-year college system called CEGEP. And there I did social sciences. So, and I would take maybe six, seven classes a semester and just kind of covering all social sciences. And then I went to university and started off in politics and economics. And while I liked economics, I think I just kind of maxed out with my maths ability (laughs) pretty quickly and walked into a philosophy class and, uh, kind of ended up doing politics and philosophy for my undergraduate. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, so undergraduate degree completed. What what next for you? Uh, so I really liked um, basically what's called political theory, which is actually in politics, but kind of pretty close to philosophy. And there was a teacher there who kind of really mentored me. Uh, he actually took me under his wing and we did like a directed readings class. So I would just meet with him and he'd give me a reading list and I'd go write essays. And then he said, oh, you know, you really should think about going to graduate school. So I went and did a master's degree at University of Victoria. Uh, and then after finishing that, I went to the U.S. to University of Minnesota to do a PhD there in uh, political science. So when did you find yourself in Southampton? Um, that's, well, that's pretty late in my, my life, relatively recently. So that's, that's, uh, I guess, well, actually it's been a while now. So this is my, uh, eighth year here. Um, so I, I came here, I was hired as an associate professor here in 20, the 2013, 2014 academic year. So, uh, and this was an appealing job and it, we kind of, my partner and I both, um, both really wanted to spend some time in Europe. And so this seemed like a good way to do that. So we've been pretty happy since we've moved here. So you PhD at Minnesota? Yeah, so I did a PhD in Minnesota. My my training's actually in international relations and political theory. So those are the two two different areas in political science. Um, and so for most of my career, I was actually more interested in kind of questions around state to state relations, questions of war, uh, you know, just dif- different kinds of issues around that. Uh, and it, it sounds a bit weird that how do you go from say warfare to riots? But I, I think honestly, had I not spent so long studying kind of war th- warfare and just war theory and teaching that area that I, that I would have kind of come on this topic. And that kind of let me come at this topic from a totally kind of different angle, I think. Yeah, that, no- that novel approach of the, of the point of entry to be able to, to understand this is, is really interesting, isn't it? The, so, um, uh, so post-Minnesota, but, but pre-Southampton, where, what, what other institutions were you at? So I kind of bounced around for a bit. I did a one-year teaching fellowship at University of Victoria right after I finished my PhD. And then I got a postdoc fellowship, postdoctoral fellowship at University of British Columbia for a year. And then I landed a what in the U.S. is called a tenure-track job, but here it'd be like a permanent job at uh, the University of Oklahoma. And I was there for six years. Uh, and that, that's when the job opened up at Southampton. 
Um, good stuff. So the the project that um, uh, that we've been working on together for uh, for a little while now, just just and unjust rights. Perhaps you could give us a bit of an overview about um, uh, uh, how this project came to to start um, uh, uh, to kick off with. Yeah, so I, it actually came out of my teaching. So in one of the undergraduate modules I teach here, I do a section on what's called just war theory, which is a long tradition in Western political thought about what might justify the use of force between states, our armed, armed kind of use of force, armed conflict. And uh, so I was preparing my lecture notes for that module, and this was, would have been in 2015, and there'd been a riot in Baltimore uh, contesting the police killing of a black man in the U.S. named Freddie Gray. And uh, so I was reading the news reports about that, reading my lecture notes, and I was kind of just, it just hit me like a lightning bolt. Like there actually isn't an equivalent political philosophy around rioting as there is in war. And my, my initial intuition was that's a bit strange because, you know, while riots are certainly violent, they're they're often far less lethal, often kind of not lethal at all, whereas warfare can be quite quite lethal. And so we, we certainly have like a, a large kind of grammar of you know, what might justify an attack, what are, what are kind of the laws of armed conflict, uh, you know, what's a permissible or impermissible thing for you know, soldiers to do in a war. And we don't have anything like that when it comes to rioting. And so I was basically puzzled as to why. So you've got an interesting question, uh, but then uh, uh, the uh, uh, the devil is always in the funding. Um, uh, who, um, uh, who Who's the funder for, for, for this project? Uh, how, how did that come about? So actually, I didn't start off writing this with the aim of getting funding. I just wrote a, a conference paper and presented it. And... Is one of those weird, like I've written a lot of conference papers in my life and sometimes they go nowhere. But I would present it and then someone would be like, that's really interesting, can you come here and present it? So I basically spent four or five years refining this one paper and sent it off uh, to go into print. And then I saw a call for a British Academy fellowship. So the British Academy ended up funding me, but I'd actually already written a paper on this. And then in writing that paper, I kind of saw that actually the topic's a lot broader than a paper. So... The fellowships kind of enabled me to expand the research and kind of write write a lot more broadly too. So the the British Academy funded me for what's called a mid career fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there, there was something rather uh, uh, useful with the timing that you've been beavering away at this work and, uh, and refining it, and then um, uh, suddenly into the uh, uh, Queen's speech we we have the introduction of the Police Crime Sentencing and, and Courts Bill. Um, you had some engagement with uh, 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 with that bill. Perhaps you could talk through for the listeners um, uh, how you supported that. So... What's so? What's I mean? One part of my, this research project really looks at the history of what's called public order legislation, and so you can go all the way back to the 1700s. You can actually even go earlier back than that. But there have been various riot acts in UK history, and um, this kind of current bill is kind of a similar variation of that. And so, one thing I've noted in my research is there's basically a pattern where you have a period of kind of social upheaval with a lot of protests. And sometimes the government or state may respond with um, kind of acknowledging the demands, but quite often not. And then one of the other common things is introduction of more restrictive laws around protests. So when I saw this bill being kind of introduced, my read is that it's largely in response to a recent wave of protests 
both around the movement for Black Lives, but also kind of climate climate justice groups such as Extinction Rebellion. And a lot of the things in the bill are actually targeting specific tactics those activists do. So when I saw the call for from the Human Rights Can- Committee in Parliament and kind of asking for submission of evidence, I felt like I had a, enough kind of historical background to make an intervention there. And, and a large part of my comments were actually a lot of this stuff's been tried before. And often, you know, after governments pass these bills, they actually aren't all that effective. So I can talk about that a bit more Yeah, if let's you want talk about the, about the key findings from the work that you've, you've completed so far. Yeah, so I think, so the first thing's that there's basically this pattern in British law and British protests, and it goes way back, but I, I kind of take as the, the starting point the Riot Act of 1714 and 1715. So if you've ever heard the expression reading the Riot Act, it literally comes from that bill. And that was introduced after a series of, of um, kind of protests across England contesting the ascension of the House of Hanover to the, the crown. I mean, we don't need to get into the history of that, but basically there were a lot of riots then. And so <laughs> Parliament introduced an act to stop rioting. And that didn't, surprisingly, surprise, surprise, they didn't really stop rioting, but it gave a lot more power to, at the time, what were called the magistrates and local militias to punish rioters. And you can kind of tell a story from that moment all the way through the Public Order Act of 1986 that kind of looks at kind of Different tactics for kind of restricting protests, but one of my big points is that ultimately they prove futile. And that's partly because protesters actually develop their protest tactics deliberately in response to the existing reg- legislation, right? So, um, you know, one of one of the favorite ones from history is actually even pre-1715, but there's, there's basically kind of within the common law tradition around riot acts, there's a rule that a, a crowd constitutes three or more people. So there's kind of cases in the 1500s where one thing protesters would do is they'd go out and they'd be protesting acts of enclosure. And one of the things they'd do is kind of go around in pairs. They want to be in groups of three because that would violate the law. But if they went and protested as, as twos and kind of go out in groups of twos, they could evade detection. Another famous one is the Riot Act actually required people to read out the Riot Act. So you have to read it out, and it also had to be heard by the protesters. And so protesters would then just make a lot of noise around the time of the, the Riot Act being read out, or they come and, there's one case famously where they kind of snatched it from the magistrate trying to read it out. And by preventing the act from being read, they couldn't be charged with protests, right? So the, and there's all kinds of things like this. So one of my points was actually... This riot act kind of got very specific in terms of, sorry, this kind of current bill gets very specific in terms of the kinds of things it's trying to protest. So you can almost, there's one thing about like affixing yourself. So people have done things like stick, they find a very strong adhesive, attach themselves to a moving vehicle or kind of attach themselves to the road. And so people, protesters may very well uh, develop different tactics. So just read that and say, okay, we won't do that. We'll come up with something else. Protesters are quite, quite creative in that way. But the flip side is also there's a long history of protesters looking at the riot acts and other kind of public order acts and actually deliberately breaking the law. Like one one common tactic of protest and civil disobedience is to basically overwhelm the judicial system. So basically one possible thing could be rather than one person affixing themselves to a barrier, you could have a thousand do that. And then it becomes completely impossible for the police to restore kind of civil order. So part of it was pointing out the futility of it. Part that actually quite concerned me was there's a, a large kind of, I want to say subjectivity uh, in, in the bill. So a large part of it focuses on noise and how loud a protest is. And, and one of the kind of peculiar things about protests is 
the larger the protest is, necessarily the louder it's going to be. And so it, the bill actually introduces this very kind of odd thing that the more popular opposition there is to something, the more likely it's going to attract a large crowd and actually, the more likely it's to become criminal, right? So if you have 10 people protesting something, it's going to be very difficult for them to be loud. But the bill actually kind of does, it doesn't really spell out exactly what the criteria would be, at least in this kind of current form. And so you can imagine a case where if you have 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000, something like the Stop the War protests in the early 2000s, that would be seen as kind of far more criminal under this act than, say, 10 people kind of standing silently, even though the, the 20, 30,000 people protesting, even 100,000 people protesting would actually have a lot more public support behind it. So it has this weird effect of actually undercutting popular protests. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, uh, in PPS, supported the uh, the submission that you made to the uh, uh, to the committee in the form of a, a written submission addressing uh, uh, noise as well as some of the challenges for um, uh, for police officers to enact these new powers uh, should they be granted um how in terms of that process of scrutiny of the bill how how did that manifest itself how how was uh, uh, how was your uh, input included so, I mean, I was kind of pleasantly surprised because I sent it off. And uh, when the final report was released, I got an email from Parliament and it basically said the report's here, took me to the link. And I kind of started reading through it. And actually, there were some direct quotes from my uh, submission of evidence. And I was kind of cited a couple of times. And it seemed like they took that that committee at least took my advice on and their recommendations for amendments to the bill. Uh, I don't. I think those none of those amendments were taken up subsequently. So it doesn't. In terms of like the ultimate impact of changing the bill, that didn't happen. But it at least felt nice to have my my kind of opinions read by sure. parliamentarians, right? Uh, and and uh, of use to parliamentarians. Um, you know, uh, uh, with a majority of uh, of seventy nine, government of the day will, will will get the things that they want. But, yeah, of uh, course. But being yeah. able to uh, go through the process of the scrutiny is is useful nonetheless. So, um, so I'm interested. What um, it, it sounds that this this work has been incredibly timely um, uh, 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 with the additional funding from uh, from British Academy. What do you what do you plan to do next? Well, so the the fellowship itself calls for me to write three papers, and I've drafted two, and I'm in the process of drafting the third one. And so those would kind of be peer reviewed academic outputs, and then. Once those are complete, my my next goal is to go secure a book contract to to write a kind of full book on this topic. So those are kind of the academic outputs. But you know, the more I, I mean, if someone asked me kind of what a riot is, right? And the more I do the research, it's a bit shifting what a riot is. But I've kind of come to the conclusion that a riot's basically a protest the state doesn't like, uh, because essentially at its core. What anti-riot legislation does is criminalize some varieties of protest. And so really, as I've kind of worked through this, what I've really seen at the core of this is there's a, there's a basic fundamental human right to what we call public assembly, right? And that a lot of democratic action requires people to come together, either in crowds to protest or to meet in small groups. And a lot of different human rights instruments around the world kind of recognize that right. But we also see like lots of famous cases of you know, both authoritarian but also democratic regimes trying to police that. And so I see myself really as kind of thinking through thinking through kind of the implications of this right to public assembly. So we've got a, an idea about some additional academic outputs. Um, and as we recall today, the uh, the bill is has not yet received uh, royal assent, but it's certainly on its way uh, uh, for that as the next stage of the parliamentary process. Um, so, so the bill will become an act... Um, 
but you've spoken uh, eloquently about the uh, uh, the process of this this cat and mouse uh, uh, refinement uh, between protesters and legislators, uh, and the challenges to uh, to the criminal justice system of being able to um, uh, apply the legislation which has been passed. What do you see as, as future iterations? What where do you see taking the uh, the key findings that you have uh, completed to to move forward? So, in terms of the policy implications, like. I mean, so I think one, just this more just kind of a general point, right, and that I think flows from my research is, like, no no bill is ever a final point in the political process, right? So if I can trace a legislative history in the UK back to the 1300s, and you certainly can around rioting and protest, this is just one moment or episode in that. And I think one, one of the advantages of kind of looking at this kind of long sweep of history is that we see, okay— I kind of anticipate a couple of things happening. So first of all, it probably will give the police a lot more powers to police protests. And police may very well, if there's the next, there will be another kind of upheaval of some some sort. So the next kind of major upheaval, um, the police may kind of try to use those powers, but we still kind of live in a, a state that's kind of governed by the rule of law. So I would definitely anticipate judicial challenges in those cases. And so that may mean that some of the parts of the act are found to not kind of match with human rights law. And so they may be kind of set aside and the, the parliament may be asked to kind of revise that parts of the legislation. It also could be the case that, you know, protesters will just develop different tactics or they may try to overrun the system by kind of challenging a tactics en masse, as I said kind of a bit earlier. So if it's not one person affixing themselves, but if it's a thousand that creates a very different problem for policing. Um, so I kind of, I, I personally see these things as kind of ongoing struggles. Um, I teach a, an undergraduate class on protests, and a lot of that's quite historical. And, you know, a, lo- a lot of the kind of paradigmatic moments, uh, so for instance, Rosa Parks kind of sitting on the bus and kind of refusing to get up when she's asked to move to challenge the segregation laws in the U.S. South— it was really that the activists in that moment saw that as the most appropriate way to respond to that injustice. Um, and so I think, I honestly do kind of kind of a faith that if people are kind of fighting some kind of injustice, no law is going to stop them, right? That they can certainly kind of challenge that too. I mean, I do hope legislatively that perhaps if not this government, but the next government kind of looks and realizes that there's actually very good value in protecting rights of public assembly and rights of protest, that, that protest is essential to democracy and that actually most of the significant advances in terms of human freedom have come not through kind of voting a different government in, or certainly demo- that's a key part of democracy, but actually through often kind of small minorities having views that at the time seemed quite outlandish to the majority, but they believed it kind of quite deeply they were able to challenge it through protests, that they, they through kind of acts of disobedience, uh, were the ones who actually moved the system. And so I think at least acknowledging that, uh, and hopefully the later government kind of sees the value in that and the value in protecting protests too. Thank you. Um, it's a great, uh, uh, a rollicking ride uh, through from uh, uh, from the 1500s to, uh, uh, to the 2020s and a fascinating area of work. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.